Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, thanks, Pete. How are you tonight? Well, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have an episode for you on advocacy with a few guests. First, we have Dr. Joe Abood from the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia. Dr. Abood, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Peter. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me tonight. Next, we have Melissa Wright from MedStar Union in Baltimore. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. And finally, we have Kevin Cronin, who's currently a Shoulder Nimble Fellow at the Rothman Institute. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to a great discussion. All right, so I think this topic can be nebulous. So I'm hoping that each of you could just tell us what advocacy means to you. So Kevin, start us off here. What does it mean to you when we talk about advocacy in orthopedic surgery? That's a great question. So I think the definition of advocacy can be quite different for different people depending on how they look at it. So for me, when you ask me what advocacy means, I think that it is a form of public service that we have to be a part of. and especially as someone in training like myself, it's really easy to put your head down and learn how to be a good physician and a good surgeon and focus on your patients. But there's a lot of other factors that are going on around you that we need to be cognizant of. And at some degree, no longer is that really enough. And we have to be a public servant and look at our patients from their standpoint and the issues that they face. So for me, advocacy is being able to provide a voice for the patients. What about you, Melissa? When you think about advocacy, what does that mean to you? What is that? What role do we as shoulder surgeons have for advocacy? Yeah, I think that's you know a question that um, a lot of people ask themselves. And honestly, how I got into this is I started asking myself, what does that mean to me? And and you know how can I be involved? Um, and take the take. Sometimes you know it gets the term political advocacy gets used. And I think trying to separate the politics from the advocacy is something that is um, really important because to me, advocacy just means, um, you know, supporting a cause or, um, a person or a group. And so, you know, as Kevin said, you know, every day we advocate for our patients, um, whether that's just, you know, trying to get them the best care they need, um, a treatment, talking to insurance, you know, spending time with them. And this is just taking that kind of mentality and that advocacy that we do on a very, um, you know, person level every day to a higher level to try and enact broader change. What about you, Joe? I mean, you've made some real contributions in this area. Tell us to you, when you think of advocacy, what, is, what does it mean to you? So, uh, Peter, this is a great question because um, if you asked me in 2016 what it meant to me, it meant to be a, a box I had to check to sort of say I was committed as a good physician. But in 2016, it, it really... Uh, was sort of thrust upon me and I was sort of asked to take on a, a role at Rothman Orthopedics that was outside of my wheelhouse. I, I was, as Kevin was alluding to, uh, I was comfortable with clinical care and decision-making and, and, and research, but I really wasn't comfortable with advocacy in the sense of, yeah, I'd, I'd gone to a couple of fundraisers and given it a, a little bit of money. Um, and was part of a new committee that was formed at Rothman at the time that was doing a, I would say, okay job, but 
Um, my chairman at the time and currently is Alex Vaccaro. And um, he likes to shake things up. And so he said to me, uh, hey, Joe, you're going to be the chair of the committee now. And I was like, uh, excuse me? I was just sort of, you know, contributing to a committee that I was just listening to everybody who knew what they were doing and just trying to learn from them, such giants as Jerry Williams and Fred Liss in the realm of advocacy. And he said, no, we're going to blow up the committee. We're going to restart everything. We're going to reshape the way we think about this. And I want you to think about how to do it. So I went around and talked to all the people that I knew were smart in this area, Fred Liss, Jerry Williams, Chip Hummer in Pennsylvania. And then I, I, uh, <clears throat> I came across, like you oftentimes do, uh, a lucky situation. Um, I was at a AOA meeting and the AOS PAC was there. And Stacy Monroe had just been hired away from OBGYN PAC and was heading it up and started the advisory circle for the PAC. Um, and she and her colleagues at the time started talking to me about what services the AOS PAC can provide as advisory circle as sort of your personal lobbying effort for your prof profession, for your corporation, for your health system, depending on what your interests are. And so uh, we spent a fair amount of time interviewing them and thinking about, you know, what that was going to be worth to us at, at Rothman and, and what insight they could provide us. And they have so much, uh, I would say, firepower behind them. Uh, and they really taught me so much about how to advocate about the issues that are important to our patients, first and foremost, to our physicians, to our profession. Um, and they allowed me to learn, uh, use our ability as, as for Rothman to be their founding um, member of their advisory circle. So now their advisory circle has, I would say, 25 members, but we're very proud to have been the founding member of that advisory circle. And they taught us how to be strategic and bipartisan and how we uh, donate money and how to stay away from presidential politics and focus on politics that are important to uh, our patient base, our physician base, and the issues that are important to us as physicians and, and not let this get into the, the weeds of personal ideology and philosophy, et cetera, which are really not what we are doing as advocates and uh, as physician advocates. So let me take that a bit further. Um, I think, especially for our young listeners, similar to what you mentioned in terms of your thoughts on advocacy in 2016, it's, it's a checkbox. It's kind of like something you do, you, you check it off and, and then you move on. Why is it important, and specific to the three of you, why, why is being an advocate or advocating for anything, obviously we all want to advocate for our patients, but that's not entirely what we're talking about here. Why is advocacy for our society or for, for our, our, our orthopedic world in general important? Melissa, let's start with you. Why do you think advocacy is important? Well, I think that, um, you know, you said this isn't just advocating for our patients, but I think in a lot of ways it is, um, you know, we there there are problems with our healthcare system and how we can deliver care to our patients and you know we know that those issues better than anyone else and so if we're not engaged with the political process and engaged with the kind of legislation that is you know going to coming down the pipeline that could be affecting our patients and the care they can receive then you know, if we're not the ones doing it, who is, you know, we know, we just know better than anyone else kind of what issues directly affects patients. And then at the same time, um, in order for us to continue to do our job, we need, um, you know, legislation that allows us to do that and in the most effective way. And so I think, um, 
it goes hand in hand with with advocating in order to help our patients get better care is advocating and you know working through this process to allow um, things to work fairly for physicians so we can do our job effectively so we can deliver the best care and I just think you know if not if not us then who yeah I think that's a great point and I think a lot of times we are on the receiving end of a lot of complaints but then we don't do enough as physicians we expect others to do them for us because we're just going to work taking care of our patients and going home and that's clearly not enough Kevin let's go to you what do you think are the most important issues with regard to advocacy as an orthopedic surgeon and as a shoulder and elbow surgeon today. Um, what are the most important issues to you and what are the most important issues that you hope that are, are that ASES advocates for and that orthopedic surgeons, particularly young orthopedic surgeons, advocate for right now? So I think uh, what Melissa said was spot on. So, you know, we when you look at how we practice medicine and how we take care of patients, the the government or the entity that kind of governs what, what we do, they really have their hand in everything. So they have a, a stake in how we get paid between bundles, macro MIPS, all the acronyms we hear about, how we practice, employed academic models, whether or not we can do telemedicine, um, what we're allowed to do, prior authorization, scope of practice, who we're allowed to treat based on our network, what we're allowed to own, imaging centers, ASCs, physician-owned hospitals, you know, they really kind of govern everything that we're allowed to do. And no one knows what we do better than us. So no one knows the business of medicine better than we do. No one knows how to take care of patients on a daily basis in an efficient, effective way better than we do. So it's important for us to be involved in those decisions that are being made really every day. When it comes to shoulder and elbow specific issues, there are many things going on right now that directly affect us and members of the ASES and directly affect shoulder patients. So, um, you know, take any one of the few issues that we are kind of in the national media right now. So you can look at prior authorizations, um, surprise billing, which was just passed as well. You know, total shoulder arthroplasty uh, came off the inpatient only list this year. Um, you know, we've seen our hip and knee colleagues, how they dealt with that in the past few years and the issues uh, that came with that happening. Uh, next year, total shoulder arthroplasty will get an ASC code to be able to be done in an ASC setting. What are the implications for us to that? So these are why where the, the AOS and the Office of Government Relations and the PAC that Dr. Boot alluded to earlier are really working behind the scenes every day for us on the regulatory side of things to make sure that these laws that are being passed are looked at in appropriate favor for us as surgeons and to be done in a safe, effective manner for our patients as well. So, you know, I think with shoulder arthroplasty coming off the inpatient only list this year, that, that's a huge issue that we're advocating for to make sure it's effective for us, efficient for us, and safe for our patients. And Joe, what do you think, you know, you're, you're a seasoned surgeon, you've been through a lot of changes in orthopedics with, um, with CPT codes and with just so many different rules and regulations seeming to change by the month, if not by the year. And I'm sure you've seen things come through full circle and change and change back and then change back again. What do you think right now are the hottest topics for orthopedic surgeons with regard to advocacy right now? What affects you most? What affects your patients most? Um, well, I, I don't know if it's the hottest topic right now, but 
I think we've shown over and over that physician-owned hospitals um, are able to deliver care in a very cost-efficient fashion, high-quality, uh, competitive fashion. And we've seen that these vertical networks, these large health systems, uh, say to us that we are conflicted as, as surgeons and we're uh, cherry-picking but we at Rothman have, you know, used the term of demand matching and to the point where, you know, we send the right patients to the facility they need to, to receive the right amount of care at the appropriate uh, level of acuity and cost. And we're all for cost transparency, which has been very hard to really uh, attain. Um, we've also seen that the two physician-owned hospitals that we've developed in this area have run so well that our university hospitals have wanted to partner with us and co-own them with us because, and they've also let us continue to be the managers of it because we've run them so efficiently and so well. And so the thing that's really hurt us is with the Obama healthcare plan, the moratorium on uh, physician-owned hospital expansion and new physician-owned hospitals, has really been a, a bad thing as far as access of care for really patients throughout the country. And we've seen with the, you know, the epidemic and the pandemic, these smaller facilities are actually great places to have uh, potentially COVID-free uh, surgical environments, whereas the large hospitals were very hard to control in these settings. And I think that it's, it's a shame that this issue gets, you know, tumbles around over and over, yet we don't see any ability to make any headway in the ability to uh, let these facilities grow again, because I really believe that they are providing excellent care for, for, for patients, and it's not fair for the hospital systems to incorporate all these physicians in their network and control the MRI, the CT, the surgical facility, and say that they're not self-referring, but yet say the physicians are self-referring. And I think that's an issue to me that I'm very passionate about. Um, and I, I think that uh, we've gotten the short end of the stick on that for many, many years. So I think that's just a great example of something we really need to work on in the future. And um, one of the things that I think can make this maybe more tangible to the average surgeon is to talk about examples of things we've really achieved through advocacy. So I'm hoping... Kevin, you can look back in your experience and think of some, an example, a concrete example of something important we've achieved through our, our, our advocacy efforts as surgeons. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a, that's a great question because you know, a lot of times we talk about all the work and time and effort we put into this and what do we really have to show for it. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of what we have to show for it is beating things down that we're going to be extremely de detrimental to us and our patients. So, preventing things from actually happening. And I think the physician-owned hospital issue is one that's really interesting because when that was included in the Affordable Care Act, you know, physicians and surgeons, especially orthopedic surgeons, were a lot more passive at that point. And that kind of lighted the fire on us to be bigger advocates for ourselves and our patients. And we've really been fighting that battle for the past 10 plus years to try to get that repealed. But as far as wins that we can say things that we've done that have been tangible, you know, I look at the Sports Medicine Licensure Act that was passed about two years ago 
after five to seven years of kind of battling through Congress with that. And what that allows you to do is uh, physicians who are caring for athletes allow them to cross state lines uh, without the proper licensure and treat their athletes across state lines. So that was a huge win for us as, as ASE members and certainly our sports colleagues as well. Um, one more recently that was in the news was surprise billing. Um, I'm sure a lot of people saw the commercials on about that. When surprise billing was first targeted as an issue that was going to get done in 2020, we were way behind the eight ball. So, you know, the insurance lobbyists uh, were way ahead of us on that. They had been working on that for many years. And what was being presented as draft legislation was extremely damaging and extremely detrimental to us as physicians and surgeons and really not in the best interest of the patients. So over the past year plus of, of advocating, we were able to significantly change that legislation and in, not to get too much into the details, but we were a, basically able to include an arbitration process that looked at more so commercial charges as opposed to what's actually paid. And what that does is allow for a more fair arbitration process when the surprise billing does happen. And we see this not infrequently with bringing a patient in for surgery where you're in network, but your anesthesiologist is out of network or a consulting service at the hospital, maybe postoperatively is out of network and our patients get hit with a big bill. And, you know, as the surgeon, you're the captain of the ship, you know, they're going to be upset with you in the postoperative uh, period when they're getting these large bills. So, you know, we're kind of responsible for those things at, at the end of the day as the surgeon. So being able to work surprise billing into a much more favorable uh, light is really a testament to our advocacy efforts over the many years because our Office of Government Relations at, at the AAOS and the ASES, I mean, we have huge relationships with everyone in play. So when these issues are, are coming up, we're there and we know who to talk to and know how to get things done. And uh, you know, to an extent, it's almost playing whack-a-mole where different issues come up and we're really, you know, defending ourselves throughout the process. But if you look at wins in the last few years, I'd look at the Sports Medicine Licensure Act as well as surprise billing. Those are just two phenomenal examples. Melissa, do you have any other examples you could think of? So on a kind of another sort of more recent topic that our, you know, political advocacy teams have been engaged in is the COVID relief liability protections. And obviously COVID is something that's been, um, you know, on everyone's mind recently. And, you know, hopefully we're starting to kind of move beyond that. But um, the, the, you know, teams on the ground, I think another, you know, good example of just that they're, they're there, they're kind of, as Kevin said, playing whack-a-mole and kind of, you know, trying to stay current and uh, addressing what's coming up is the, the work that was done, that, done with that to provide uh, liability protections for physicians. And so, you know, that may not be as specific to orthopedic surgeons, but, um, you know, protect us as a group in general. And then Joe, what do you think? Have you, can you think of back and think of some, some real tangible things you feel like you've achieved with advocacy to inspire others to contribute to these efforts? Yeah. And I, I think Peter, you know, with us all being scientists, I think we're so driven by measurables, right? And one of the things that you have to realize with advocacy is it's a lot of it is relationship building and it's hard to measure, but as they say, 
If you're not on the table at the table, you're on the menu. And so I think, you know, calling on your congressperson, uh, meeting with your senators, going down to Capitol Hill, spending that time um, really develops relationships and they start to call on you when they need advice. Because one of the things that's the most, I think, intimidating for surgeons in general or healthcare providers or really anyone outside the area of legislation is to meet with somebody in Congress and feel like they know what they're talking about. And so there's that feeling of anxiety before you walk into a congressperson's um, office or, or senator or, or their, uh, <clears throat> their, their um, liaison and speaking to them and feeling like, gosh, you know, am I really knowledgeable enough to be speaking to this person? But yet when you sit down and as John Gill uh, told me, uh, Dr. Gill from, from Dallas told me years ago, Remember, we as physicians do this all the time. We walk into a room and speak to someone we've never met. And in five minutes, we're talking to them about very specific things that are potentially life-threatening and we're going to potentially treat them. Uh, and you become much more comfortable having these conversations with, with Congress people and feeling closer to them and being able to call on them and speak to them. And oftentimes, they'll take your, your cell phone number or share their email and ask you to reach out to them about issues, because quite frankly, I think they need a broad base of people to talk to. And I think that it's one thing to give money. It's a very small percentage of people that actually give up their time and go down and, and, and meet with these individuals and attend these activities. And really, I think that the beauty of uh, our, you know, our U.S system is our access to our people is really unparalleled if you just spend the time. I've been surprised about the many people I've been able to, to meet with over the years with access just by showing up and, and being there and then wanting to listen to you because they really are not content experts on, on a lot of these matters. Uh, and they really want to listen to you as physicians who are contact experts. So I think those are the wins is, is learning that you can have relationships and develop these relationships over the years. And it's a long term process. It's not going to you know, it's not one of these. It's not like a case for us. You know, we can measure it by we did eight cases today. That was tangible. It's, it's much more different. It's like that patient you didn't operate on that thinks you're a great physician and sends you you know, six patients in the future, not very tangible, but an indirect win that, you know, you have rewards for years to come from. Joe, tell us what the ASCS is doing on, on, on uh, this front. I know you've been involved with the ASCS Foundation, and um, certainly it sounds like you've been involved with Rothman. What is the ASCS doing on the advocacy front? You know, I think ASCS has been working hard on really grassroots efforts at educating the society. I think this is one of the, the methods that we do this, getting more involvement uh, through its membership, through the young, especially the young members, you know, being not only on the uh, advocacy uh, committee, but also on the membership chair, there's been a huge push to really engage more and more members, younger members, and really have them involved in the process that's our political process here, because quite frankly, the the sort of senior members of the ASES, they have a much shorter window of time to practice. And a lot of these issues that affect their patients uh, and them as physicians and, and their profession, it, that window is, is, is much smaller. But for our younger members, this is a this is a window of opportunity for them to get engaged, whether it be on 
you know, decreasing Medicare reimbursement, whether it be on shoulder arthroplasty being in the outpatient uh, list for, for Medicare. Many of these things are going to have repercussions for us, both good and bad. And then we learn about this through sometimes our counterparts in the hip and knee world, et cetera. But I think it's, it's really important that we are engaged, that they see that we're, we're active, we're involved. And, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, quite frankly, uh, seeing what <clears throat> our counterparts, trial attorneys uh, do and, and, and how they lobby, I think it's very important for us as physicians to be at the table at all times and make sure that people are aware that we're listening, we're engaged, uh, we uh, really want to know what's going on for our patients. So I think the ASES, uh, to the credit of uh, Tony Romeo, Frank Cardasco, Bill Levine, and Mark Frankel now, They've really made it a, a, a very important aspect of the ASES, uh, and, and they've really advocated for things like this to be done to really spread the word to our membership. Well, I think everything that you guys have brought up is, you know, is representative of the world around us right now, today in 2021, and what we really need to focus on as surgeons. But I think another question that our listeners will be curious about is what you guys see as happening in the future. And what do you think are the next several topics we need to be focusing on as orthopods? You know, um, Kevin mentioned getting or looking at that CPT code for outpatient arthroplasty with regard to the shoulder. Um, but what's coming down the pipeline in the next three to five years that we need to be ahead of the game on um, as healthcare changes, as systems change? Um, uh, Melissa, let's start with you. What do you think you see or envision as being the most important things to advocate for? as an orthopedic surgery community, as well as as a shoulder and elbow surgeon um, yourself? So, I mean, I think, you know, as you mentioned, the total shoulder coming off of the inpatient list, and I think that's a kind of a harbinger of the way a lot of our, our you know, way we provide healthcare is moving. And obviously, as shoulder and elbow surgeons, a lot of what we do already is outpatient. But I think that um, COVID has only pushed things further where more and more of what we do is going to be in an outpatient setting and, you know, in the ambulatory surgery setting. And so really staying ahead of, um, you know, how legislation is going to affect surgery centers, how they're owned, how they're managed, um, how reimbursements occur on an outpatient basis versus how they, you know, occurred previously on an inpatient basis. And, um, you know, really just staying on top of the direction that um, CMS and the legislative bodies as a whole are taking when it comes to how we provide um, kind of these services on a more outpatient, but, you know, cost-effective and safe manner for our patients. Um, I think that the, you know, healthcare disparities is something that is, you know, becoming more and more recognized um, across, you know, orthopedics, across shoulder and elbow surgery, across medicine as a whole. And, um, you know, how our healthcare system is set up that may be exacerbating some of those disparities, I think is going to become um, very much a topic in, you know, government in the coming years. And, you know, whether there are things we need that need to happen on a legislative level to try and, you know, affect change um, in that way. And so I think, um, obviously, like, continuing to, you know, understand the types of disparities that are affecting our own populations, but then be also cognizant of, you know, there's, there's a 
there's consequences to every action. And so just staying abreast of the situation in terms of, you know, what legislation is being proposed and, you know, even if the, the benefits, you know, may allow for some improvement in something, but kind of watching the side effects for our practice as a whole. And Kevin, what are your thoughts on this? What do you see as the next hot topic in the next three to five years that we have to be advocating for? Or we should at least have on our radar. So I, I think as healthcare continues to change, you know, and Melissa touched on this a little bit, but the whole idea of value and, and what's value? Value, we say value is outcomes divided by cost, more or less. And, you know, how do we show value for our patients and, you know, for the systems and the overall healthcare population as a whole. So the, our, our value is going to be assessed whether we like it or not. And I think being at the table when these decisions are being made is important. So, you know, is patient satisfaction a part of value? Is, you know, what they come to the hospital and do they, do they like the room that they're in? Is that part of value? And is that effect on how we get reimbursed for what we do or, or what we don't do. So, you know, being a part of that discussion is going to be very important because these are starting to creep up and we've seen them over the last few years and the bundles or the macro or the MIPS are different ways that we can be creative about change. And from a surgeon standpoint is being creative and thinking outside of the box because, you know, the fee for service model is most likely not going to be here in X amount of years. And what can we do to be creative on that and make change that provides value to the surgeon and value to the patient? You know, and that goes with, is it shifting to the outpatient setting? Is it, you know, expanding our physician-owned hospitals that we know are, are safer and more cost-effective and provide better outcomes and they provide more value? So being aware of those issues and being able to shape it in a way that we can have a seat at the table when the decisions are being made so we understand because, you know, as we said previously, we understand what we do better than everyone else. So letting other people make these decisions for us is not advantageous for us or advantageous for our patients. Well, those are just great things we can do in the future. As a take-home, Joe, tell us how the average surgeon can get involved with these efforts. You talked a little bit about meeting with congressmen. How do you facilitate that? What other things could you do if you're interested in advocating more for us and for our patients? Yeah, so great question, Peter. If I could just answer that last question for a second, just for just because I think there's a one, one issue that I think is still important to discuss, and that's the potential for a single payer system. And that, that could be a significant problem we face in the next five to 10 years. And it could be a problem for um, many of the things that Melissa and Kevin spoke to, including quality and competition. Um, and, you know, the, we've been in the bundle payments and we've seen the upsides of it. And we've also seen the downsides of it after a few years, it's a race to the bottom. So we have to really be careful about these things and, and, and be engaged as, as Melissa and Kevin said, I think to your question, Peter, as far as how does the uh, surgeon get in, engaged and involved? I think there are a lot of opportunities if you pay attention for people um, having um, fundraisers um, at various uh, entities, whether it be uh, health systems or partners, to listen to what the individuals are speaking about. And obviously, there's money involved here, but at times it's a reasonably small amount of money to be able to listen to what's being said 
and start to think in your mind how you're going to affect change over the long run. And I think that, you know, if you contribute to things like the ASES PAC, obviously um, that, or I'm sorry, the ASES through the AOS PAC, that's obviously uh, very powerful. And the AOS will reach out to ASES to ask them to attend activities. And these are oftentimes, if you've sort of contributed a very small amount, uh, free for you to, to attend and go to and be able to speak to these people and, and learn about them. Honestly, you know, like I said, prior to 2016, I had not really spent much time talking to many of these individuals and learning about them, good and bad, and seeing who really understood the issues or was interested in the issues, or maybe who was interested more in just sort of having a fundraiser for fundraiser's sake. And and those are important things to understand. I mean, there are uh, obviously, like everything else, good and bad people out there. I think that, um, you know, go with a friend, find a mentor, just like it is for shoulder surgery, you have to have good mentors. For political advocacy, you have to have good mentors. And I've had great ones. Uh, you know, I've mentioned Fred Liss uh, numerous times and Jerry Williams, but they've been great mentors for helping me understand how you navigate through this process, how you get involved, um, how you sort of try to um, push some of the agenda items you have for, on behalf of your own patients or your practice. Because we, we want to be able to have still private practice groups, not all uh, physicians should be in, in large employed models with large health systems that are vertically integrated and preventing competition. So I think these are all important. And I think they, they seem very far away from us when we first finish our fellowships and go into practice, but they get closer and closer as we get older. And we start seeing some of these things that really do affect us and our loved ones. So I hope that answers that question, Peter. Well, that's great. I mean, it gives us certainly a lot of food for thought for the future and hopefully some tangible ways that surgeons listening to this can think to get involved because I think these efforts are so important for all of us. I wanted to thank all three of you for coming on. This has been really fascinating to listen to your experiences and your thoughts in this area. And um, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us about it. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you all so much. That's really all the time we have for today's podcast. We want to thank our guests so much for spending the time talking to us about such an important topic, not only for our practices as orthopedic surgeons, but most importantly for our patients and the future of our patients' ability to get healthcare. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.